want to start your own podcast about sports or whatever? Great. Unsure how to get started? No problem. That's what Buzzsprout is for. Podcast uses Buzzsprout. It's quick and easy. And myself and thousands of other podcasters around the world use Buzzsprout. You'll get an awesome looking website. Plus your show will be out on Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon, and all other platforms. You'll also get ways to promote the show, detailed analytics and stats, and a whole lot more. But that's not all. If you signed up with a paid plan for Buzzsprout, you'll get a $20 Amazon gift card. And it would also help support this show. It's easy. Just follow the link in the show notes. Buzzsprout makes podcasting fun and easy. Start your own today. Do you want to win some cash? Do you love sports betting? Then Bet99 is the place for you. It is a Canadian online betting website and app that allows you to bet on football matches or matches of any other sport. It also has an online casino. Bet99 is the official betting sponsor for the Terminal City FC podcast and the Area 51 Sports Network. Go to the Area 51 website, click betting, and sign up for a welcome offer of a 100% match up to your initial deposit of $600, as well as boosted odds for the teams that you care about the most. Bet99.com is Canada's premier place for sports betting and online casino games. Must be 19 plus to play, and please play responsibly. Terminal City FC Podcast, talking Whitecaps, Canada, Europe, and all the big stories across the world of football. Hello everyone, welcome to episode 68 of the Terminal City FC Podcast podcast part of the area 51 sports network vancouver's upcoming soccer podcast and yeah we're about a week and a half away from vancouver whitecap season not going to spend too much time talking about the preseason games because due to the apple tv deal they're not allowed to be streamed we can only see clips but there were some pretty decent results for the whitecaps in their preseason yeah, you know what? So far, the Whitecaps have gone undefeated in all of their preseason games, except for back when they were in, in, uh, in Spain. Uh, but everything against North American, uh, either, either MLS or uh, USL championship teams, has been undefeated. And it started off uh, kind of in midweek last week with a 3 nothing win against uh, Toronto. Yeah, good to see. Got a brace from... Christian Dahomey and a goal from Javane Brown. Yeah, Brown's goal was pretty nice. Uh, came off uh, a bit of a mismanagement by Toronto on a set play. Uh, Brown heads the ball home. Dahomey is finding his form again, playing in a position he's more comfortable in. He's he's got a, a number of goals, and he's got about four or five in the preseason so far. And if that translates to games, man, having that secondary scoring is going to be really, really important. Yep, secondary scoring is something the Whitecaps need, and goals in general is something they need because they were second last in goals last season. And Max Anker managed to stop Federico Bernadeschi's penalty in that game yeah. as well. 
One of the things I find really interesting, especially if you look at TFC fans and what they've been saying, is that they TFC played their, like what you might consider their, their starting 11 in the first half. Second half, both teams did a significant number of changes, brought on a lot more a lot more depth. These goals yep. were in the second half. What this a lot of them were. So what uh, TFC fans are saying is like, oh, it doesn't matter. It wasn't against our big guys. What it tells me is that Vancouver has a team. They have a full squad with depth, something that Toronto doesn't have. They're spending so much on the front end that they're forgetting everything else behind. Right, and what that also tells me is that Toronto first team is pretty good, but where's the depth? That's exactly it, right? That's exactly it. Now, again, it's preseason. We can't really take too much stock into this. And the White Caps will face TSC at BMO Field in late August and potentially in the Canadian Championship final, should both teams get there. Should both teams get there, absolutely. After that, we had a, a couple of games that happened on Sunday. They actually played full matches against a new expansion side, uh, St. Louis City SC. Ended in a nil-nil draw. Got to see uh, the return of Jake Nerwinski. I saw him uh, talking with a, a bunch of his former teammates with the Whitecaps and uh, checking back in. And uh, another game that was actually just kind of added last minute uh, against a USL side, Las Vegas Lights FC, which uh, resulted in a 2-1 win. The nice thing about both of these games is that it was the first games where a lot of players got to play for a full 90 minutes. So it what their match fitness is, is up there, right? They can actually handle the endurance over a whole 90-minute period, which is nice, especially when you consider that we're still a week out, right? Or a right. week and a half out. And we got a free kick goal from Pedro Vite, which is really nice. And Christian Dahomey also scored in this game as well. And I believe the game against Las Vegas Lights was played on the same day. It was St. Louis. Oh, yeah, it was on Super Bowl yeah, Sunday. It was. Yeah, it was. Uh, so, I mean, the one thing is you had very much a changed squad, right? Uh, s- some of the subs in the first game might have played uh, or started in the second game. But the, the idea was to allow players to get that full 90 minutes in. And you know what? Still get some good football. And the thing is, is Vite is another guy who's got, you know, a number of goals during this uh, preseason. Uh, I'm hoping that he's going to kick off where he ended last season. Because in those last, was it about four games of last season, he finally seemed to have found a home. Yeah. And again, it took him a while to get settled in. You know, new environment, can barely speak English. And a lot of people predict this could be a breakout year for Pedro Vite because he settled in and... He looks more confident, and a confident Vite. It's Vitae, also the last year of his contract. <laughs> yeah, a more confident Vite would do wonders for the Whitecaps. We know Vite <clears throat> struggled with homesickness, especially coming here, and for how young he is. I think a lot of people forget because he seems like he's been with the Whitecaps for so long. Is he just turned twenty? Right, he just yeah. turned twenty last year. This is a young kid moving uh, for his career, but you're still moving out of like the environment that you know, and I mean. Not everyone deals with that in the same way. So I, I I agree with you. I think this year is going to be a bit of a breakout year. I'm hoping it is for his sake, right? Yeah, for his, <clears throat> Playing with Ryan Gold helps. And for his sake, it would be a, it would be good for him. You're also going to have a lot of the pressure taken off now that players like Dahomey are going to be moving back up into a, a more natural position. And if we got a fully fit Diver Caicedo, hopefully. That too, right? Absolutely. Right. So when it comes to the Whitecaps, we're still waiting on signatures of two players 
We've got names. We even know how much the transfers are worth. We're just waiting for the players to show up. Yeah. Um, who knows? They could even be in Vancouver as we speak, but we're still waiting for signatures on the striker, Sergio Cordova, and Yohei Takauka, the goalkeeper. I mean, Tom Boger tweeted that they were finalized over a week ago, and still nothing. I wonder, and I'm wondering, are they waiting on visas? That's probably it. You know, and that's not out of the that's not the club's fault. It's no, it's not the club's it's the fault. And it's and you know what, we're still waiting for a a, a visa on uh, JC Ngando, uh, the number one draft pick, uh, who's still you know sitting with his family in Paris. So because unfortunately, of visas. these things take time, but. You know, for us, we want it to be immediate. It it just doesn't work that way. Yeah, and these guys are coming from Japan and Germany and Ngano from France. So I think each country is different when it comes to visas. Each country is. There's some <clears throat> countries, obviously, uh, it's a lot easier to come, especially when you t- take a look at relationships between Canada historically with, say, England. You know, those things get done. It's easy. It's simple. Right? Other ones, not so much, but much. you'd think, I mean, Germany, France, Japan, I don't know. Those, that seems like it should be, uh, <laughs> nothing, nothing to worry about there. Yeah. So I also wonder if they're going to wait until the team gets back to Vancouver to announce the signings, but I kind of, I really will get back on Sunday, I believe. Yeah. Which I really think they should have finalized these deals weeks ago, but again, visas and should have announced the. Like, Sign striker and goalkeeper should have got them done last month so they could have a full preseason to train and get ready. But better late than never, I guess. Yeah, I, you know what? I agree with you with that. These are things that I wish could have been done heading into January, like before the team actually got back together. I know these things take time. I know that they probably had you know you know fending off uh, interest from other players or other teams, but. I'm reasonably confident these will get over the line. There's not going to be any sort of last minute, you Hopefully. know, bid from some other club. It's just a matter of time. And I, I feel like you are right when you say that these are done. We're just waiting on paperwork from outside sources like the government. Right. And things can change pretty much any minute. It could even be announced by the time this podcast is out or tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. You never know. You never know. Some changes going on with Whitecaps, too. Uh, Ricardo Clark, who was a, a coach with them last year, has been named the new head coach for the second team. Nick Dazovich is going to be taking up a new role as the uh, Academy High Potential Player Head Coach. So mm. he's going to be managing kind of – you take a look at all the ca- academies that the Whitecaps have uh, across kind of Western Canada. That's his role now, which – it does seem a little bit interesting. I, I was trying to figure this out. Is that a promotion or is that more lateral? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I'm not too knowledgeable on this. Yeah. I mean, you think of Whitecaps 2 last season. They had an okay year. But that's also what I expected because it was their first year. That first year, you're basically just trying to build a team. I get so is everyone else. But other clubs in the United States... A lot of them had second teams and they were playing in other areas. Whitecaps, this is this was built from the ground up, right? We haven't had a second team to play like this in a long time. Uh, or at least one where we could actually have them in Vancouver to play, right? We were too busy relying on having teams uh, that were either kind of farm teams that were part of USL uh, Pro 
or sorry, a USL uh, championship and things like that at that level. And kind of like having some sort of relationship where we would send an already established team, some of our players, hopefully they get to play. You never know if they do, but I think this is a move in the right direction. Ricardo Clark actually does come with a pretty nice pedigree behind him in terms of, you know, not only being a player, but a coach as well. So I'm excited to see where this new chapter will go. I just didn't think it was going to happen this fast. Maybe I'll put it that way. Yeah. And then hopefully Whitecaps SC2 can take a bigger step in year two. And it's good to have a, the MLS next pro team, not like in a different city. So call-ups and, and sending downs are much, much easier and swung or it's just a sky train away from BC place. Absolutely. I mean, you take a look at where the two teams uh, train at the national soccer center. The only thing separating them is about a 30 foot walkway and a fence. Yeah. Takes you what? 30, 20 seconds. Absolutely. Yeah. We've been there. When I was talking about the pedigree behind uh, Ricardo Clark, I mean, this guy has seen MLS through and through. He actually got his start way back with the old Metro stars back in, uh, in 03. Uh, played with the Earthquakes, played with Houston Dynamo, did a trip over uh, and did play with Eintracht Frankfurt in the Bundesliga, also with Stabak, uh in Norway before coming back with the Dynamo and eventually retiring in 2019 with the Columbus Crew. Uh, he's been with the Whitecaps uh, as an assistant with uh, Whitecaps 2 for a year. So, I mean, this is definitely a promotion for him. With Dazovich, yeah, like I said, I don't know. I kind of see it as more lateral. I guess having two guys with that wealth of experience being where they're kind of, I would say, almost more equals is is a good thing for the club. Right. And good for Ricardo Clark. Knowledgeable. I think he's a good fit for Whitecaps FC, too. Yeah. Uh, later, uh, I guess, uh, sometime last week also, uh, when we recorded the last, uh, podcast, uh, we also got news here. Lucas Cavallini, former DP striker for the Whitecaps has found a new home and he is back in Liga MX in T- Mexico with Tijuana. I guess that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Uh, and he had you know interesting, what? I'm not surprised, interesting stuff to say. I'm surprised about his comments. Yeah. Let's go over that saying that. He's happy to back in Liga MX, no surprise there, and he says it was a Liga MX is a better league than MLS. He talks about and, the style in Mexico being faster, it's more dynamic, more technical, and then he says that's how sh- football should be played. I don't know. It's I guess it could be taken as a bit of an innocuous comment. Maybe it's just throwing it throwing it out there to appease uh, your new team, but. I don't feel the need to throw, you know, your former teammates under the bus. I mean, it's just, it, it's, I don't know. It, it's, it's unnecessarily petty. I, I'm not really too upset by these comments. I don't know much about Liga MX. It is a physical, sure, maybe it is faster, more dynamic. But remember, Lucas Cavallini, it didn't really fit with the Whitecaps or MLS. And he was playing on some uh, less than stellar on a less than stellar Whitecaps team when he did arrive, but even though he got the service, he couldn't really make use of it. So I guess whatever, right? I'm not really too upset about this. Maybe he probably isn't wrong because Liga MX seems to be the higher standard than MLS. You know what? But that is so rapidly changing. I mean, you take a look at uh, how well... uh, MLS teams do in the Champions League now. You take a yeah. look at 
the the ability of MLS clubs to build rosters. And now with some of those rules now being removed, I think it'll be a little bit easier. I, I kind of see them a bit more on par. And I think that's one of the reasons, maybe the only reason I actually care at all about the League's Cup this year, is we're going to see what that parity actually looks like. Yeah, well, let's actually take a look and see. It'll be good to put these two leagues together and Cavallini and Tijuana will be playing against MLS competition in that tournament. And maybe in Liga MX, he, he actually gets away with stuff he's get he gets yellow carded for in MLS. You never know. Maybe that's what he's talking about. I wonder about. about that. I kind of think he's going to end up with a few more. <laughs> yeah, well, so, I mean, a lot of White Cats fans were pretty upset about these comments. But let's keep in mind that Cavallini's perspective on MLS was based on his time with the Whitecaps. And we all know the Whitecaps did have a lot of success during his time with here. So what it, it, is, it is what it is. The Whitecaps is also frustrated by injuries. There's that. I mean, I get it, but I don't know. If you have the, if you have the chance to say something like this or say nothing, saying nothing is just so easy. To yeah, do. it's better if he would say right? said nothing. It's just so easy. So... Yeah. Also being reported so, by you coming up here is we may Well, not have, by me. Not by you, but, uh, but you brought it up, is that we could have a new sponsor, finally. Yeah, Fevian Renkel of uh, Forbes. And this is actually from the MLS press release that the Whitecaps jersey, the new kit, will be released tomorrow, February 16th. And it looks like that could mean a new sponsor on their as well, well hopefully so well, like, there's got to be a new sponsor if you're putting out a new kit yeah it's got to be without a sponsor that's kind of anticlimactic right? it's very it's like here's your new jersey that you still can't buy because there's no sponsor on it right so I, it, yeah i hope it's i hope it's done soon we i mean we have been told a little bit about the sponsor of who it might not be but, I mean, for a team like the Whitecaps, you're replacing something like Bell, which is Bell, yep. a, a big company in this Canada. Um, it, you want something that's comparable. Right. And we've it's been reported the Whitecaps have looked at national and even international companies. And the, for the jersey itself, it looks like it's going to be white because the leaks have shown that it is white. Will that still have the hoop? We don't know. I hope it actually looks as good as last year's. And I'm intrigued to see who the sponsor will be. And hopefully this is a chain reaction when it comes to announcements. And hopefully the new signings will be unveiled not long after. So I'm I'm, I'm excited to see what's the... What the New Jersey will look like, who who the new sponsor is. Though, I wish that sponsor was announced sooner. But again, things take time, and MLS teams have just started to unveil their kits in the past week. So, let's see what the Whitecaps will show off tomorrow. Sounds good. Anyway, let's talk about the bigger stuff. 
Canada soccer. Oh boy, we have a lot to say about this and let's rant about this. So the women's national team is embroiled in that still contract stalemate with Canada soccer. So I think the easiest way to take a look at that, especially when we're looking at what's happened over the past week here, is to kind of formulate a timeline here. So let's start here with February 10th. February 10th, the women's national team issues a statement that they are now on strike. They will not play in the She Believes Cup, which has the first game, well, it's actually set to be tomorrow for the women's team yep. against the United States. Canadian men's national team issues a letter of unanimous support for the women's team. The Good team is them. not playing. That's it because of, you know, a lack of uh, anything going on with uh, with negotiations. And then the next one, day, the, the yes, Players Association... The Players Association meets with representative of Canada Soccer. The strike was considered unlawful by Canada Soccer. State that they will seek damaging court over mismatches. Now, and the- we should say that when it was deemed unlawful by Canada Soccer, it's not been deemed unlawful by a, a, a legal body, right? So right. it hasn't been to court. This is just one side saying, you can't do that, and the other side saying, yes, we can. Let's just leave it at that for right now. And then the day after, the women's players trained for two hours. The Canada kits were worn inside out, and the Canada soccer logo was taped over. Yeah, so, I mean, they're basically showing that they're training under duress, right? So this training was done with a lot of the more North American-based players. European players were set to come in on the Monday. On February 13th, and this is where it gets weird for me, Canada soccer business now comes into play. So Canada Soccer Business, and we already know that there is a very strange relationship when it comes to Canada Soccer Business and Canada Soccer and how that deal works out in how they end up creating the Canadian Premier League on the men's side. It is a weird deal where that money goes, where this money magically comes from. People have a lot of questions that have never been truly answered. But the fact that they waited into this argument when they didn't have to, all they've done is now made them a target. So... They've basically said that we've donated over $100 million to grassroots soccer across Canada. We support players, yada, yada, yada. Here we go. That's fine. Yeah. I now want to know where the heck this $100 million is coming from because you brought it up. But you're entering into a fight that didn't include you. And you've now not, you've not helped anyone. You've just made yourself part of the target. And then... Yesterday, well, today, actually, um, the 13th, Canada Soccer Biz, wait, sorry, um, on the 15th, yesterday, Guardian reports the women's team head coach, Beth Priestman, is considering her future, may leave over the ongoing labor dispute, and she be- it says she believed to be considering moving to club football, but Sportsnet reports that she is committed to the women's national team no matter what. Yeah, so this is based off a Priestman comment that happened last year, which she said that she has had multiple offers from various clubs out there. Um, and that, you know, like a lot of the stuff that's going, been going on with the labor dispute has taken its toll. I think one thing we need to, uh, to recognize when it comes to this labor dispute, the women's team hasn't been paid for any of their games from last year. Nope, they haven't. Absolutely nothing, right? So there's not even, like, I guess when they get a contract, it's going to be retroactive to when the, the last one ended, but there's been nothing. Um, the other thing we should also talk about is Rick Westhead of TSN has also stated that the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, a Standing Committee created by the federal government, has discussed opening proceedings against Canada soccer. This is the same body that just recently questioned uh, Hockey Canada 
And we all yes. know kind of what's been going on with there. I mean, they've been absolutely sliced apart. So there's been at least two MPs that are a part of the standing committee that have publicly said they want to start bringing in executives of players, former players, uh, people in different uh, roles of management from Canada soccer and start to get at the crux of what is actually going on, not only with the state of the game, but also with the the ongoing allegations of abuse that have been happening for years and years and years, right? Right. Uh, Again, similar to Hockey Canada. In Canada. So back back to Priestman. Priestman, she has come out very strongly saying she is committed to the program, but that, yeah, it has been very, very trying. One of the things that was interesting is apparently when Team Canada decided to go on strike and when they were forced back by Soccer Canada, uh, Sophie Schmidt, who uh, plays her club football, I believe, down in Houston, she actually said, I'm going to retire right now. I'm done with this. I've had too much. Christine Sinclair actually had to talk her off the ledge and apparently as of Tuesday, yesterday, was able to convince Schmidt to come back to the program at least until the summer, uh, basically go through the World Cup, the Women's World Cup. And And let's not forget, Sinclair also said that she, until something gets resolved, she refuses to support, to represent the Federation. That doesn't mean like Canada, but the CSA as a Federation. So let's take a look at actually what the women want. Yes, pay equity. We know that. Pay equity has been talked about. It was talked about when the men went on strike back uh, when uh, they refused to play. Uh, Against Panama? Yeah. And the whole uh, Iran fiasco. But that's just, that's not that's not all of it, right? What they want right. to look at and what Sinclair has come out and saying is that they want to see the budget breakdown from last year as well as what the compensation offer is. The last contract that was offered by Canada Soccer, they pulled off the table. They pulled it off the table. So right now there is no offer on the table. The thing is, is Canada Soccer normally publishes their financials in March. Their company, their organization, a lot of year ends for companies is in March. That's when taxes come. It makes sense. But right now, what the women are saying is that they're basically negotiating in the dark. They can't negotiate from any sort of position without knowing what those financials actually are. And especially yeah, you can't, nego- yeah, you can't negotiate don't know- when we don't know what what's what's out there. Yeah, especially they don't know what the men uh, got, especially when it comes to, say, compensation from the World Cup and things like that. Because so, there's no communication. Exactly. The other thing that the women are really, really going after is the fact that a lot of their training days were cut. A lot of the money towards just the funding of the program was cut. cut. Now, funding to the program, I mean, this was kind of cut on both sides, but for the women, a lot more because the men had the World Cup, you know, more money was funneled there. But I think what we need to recognize is that this is not a fight over just pay. There's a no. lot more going on here. Yeah, It's more about, you know, equality with the men and better treatment of the players in general because it's better treatment that's 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 it i mean that's a, that's the simplest way of putting it it's it's feeling like you're actually valued yeah and okay let's let's rant let's, i'm gonna go off a little bit here so another day another fiasco by canada soccer and we know that in this country soccer is a growing sport because not only is the cpl growing and mls is getting some more interest but the men have gone to, to their first World Cup in over 30 years, and the women are Olympic reigning champions, and 
will be playing in their World Cup, in which they are a contender next summer. So, Canada's soccer is ruining things, because that's what they do, and the women are not only getting paid equally, but they're not getting treated right, and good on the men for standing in solidarity with the woman when it comes to this. You know, good, good on unity, right? Yeah. But Alistair Johnston in his letter and the women in their letters have said something very similar near the end, that if this cannot get resolved, Canada soccer needs new leadership because this current leadership group doesn't know what the hell they're doing. Instead of funding the women's programs and all the other programs, they're spending money on goddamn suits that are worth $11,000. And then when the players threaten to go on strike, they're all like, oh, we're going to threaten legal action. But you know what else costs legal action? Money. So don't give me that crap of, oh, we don't have any money. Well, you spend it on goddamn designer suits and for yourselves while the players don't get compensation for their images or likeness. They get, the women don't get the same amount of treatment as the men. Like, I believe, I'm not sure if this is true or not. I believe the, I'm pretty sure this might be. The women train in harsher conditions than the men. And many of them do not get the, again, we've talked about, they're not getting payments over the last year or so because Canada soccer lacks the transparency to bring out the finances. So, I don't know, it's, it's been a huge gong show for the past year or two with Canada Soccer, and in a time where it's the golden age of the sport in this country, this federation the, decides to ruin it, and where's Nick Bontis? Probably teaching at his school in Toronto, and he'll probably come out begging for the two sides to come to a deal, and then talking about, oh, this is just a volunteer basis and a, and all that. You should go. They should all should go. The players are right. There needs to be better leadership because this thing has gone on long enough. And now that we're bringing in the Standing Committee of Canadian Heritage and the fact that the players want the leadership to be gone, it goes to show how much Canada soccer ruined things. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with everything you said there. When I look at it, and this is something I've been kind of considering for a while, is that there's two things that I think should be done right away. It's not going to fix everything, but I think it, it is. it opens up a pathway to get there. Last year, when the men were going through their negotiations and the struggles with going on that way, I think we need to remember the men still have no contract as well. The men formed a player's union. They formed a player's yep. union. So when they're negotiating now, they're actually negotiating through a collective bargaining agreement. Get the women part of the union. Negotiate both together. That way, what happens with the men happens with the women. And you can negotiate the equity that you're actually looking for from the player's side, right? The players right. get more power if you're doing that together. Get the women as part of the union. Make that union stronger. Number two, and this one might be a bit more controversial, make the head of Canada Soccer a paid position. You're yeah, absolutely right. Right now, Nick Bontis, it's a volunteer role. I get that. He teaches and whatnot. Make it a paid position because then you all of a sudden increase the accountability that is forced upon that position, right? Make their livelihood dependent on it. 
Yeah, and get the president of the CSA shouldn't be a volunteer position because this is a big organization. Or should be a paid position. Yeah, it should be a paid. It should yeah. be a volunteer. Well, that's yeah. what I meant to say. It should, sure. Like, that was a... I, like, I, we didn't even find that out until last year when Bondis literally came out and said it. Yeah, I think you said it was back in a uh, thing you did in November or something like that. But yeah, it's, it's, it is strange that for one of your national sports programs that that exists where it's not paid. I mean, you're, you are in charge of millions of dollars there. I yeah. Mean, you, I mean, I, I'm not saying you should be, you know, diverting, you know, a certain percentage of that to you. It's, it should be a, a position where you can live. I'm not, I'm, I don't want you to get rich off it, right? That's not, the, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that if you are going to be heading a national organization like that, you need to have some attachments to it. Of I get the passion behind a volunteer position and doing it well. But if your livelihood is directed elsewhere, I'm sorry. But then all of a sudden this becomes secondary. And it should not be secondary by the person who is in charge. Yeah, and... For Nick Bontis, or should I say Dr. Nick Bontis, because that's what he wants to be called, he, again, is teaching business, and this is just a volunteer position, and his mindset is probably with teaching, because, I mean, that's his full-time job, and being a teacher is an important position, especially at a university, but... We need someone in here who can really commit to the CSA and someone who can bridge the gap between the players and the CSA because Nick Bontis is not the person to do it, nor is others of the leadership group. And oh, they can take their um, designer suits with them. So it goes to show You love that those suits, don't you? <laughs> he, you want one. You want one of those jackets. Oh yeah, I mean I would, but if I had the money, I I would, but yeah, who can afford eleven thousand dollars? Who, who, who can afford eleven thousand dollars, but not give the women money for their their matches over the past year? Yeah, absolutely. It's I mean it's just another like dent in the in sports in Canada. We talked about hockey Canada and their abuse scandals like Canada soccer is no different no not at all not at all especially when you take a look at uh, the jails uh, jail time that players like or uh, not players coaches like Barada got and what we're waiting on and Busby Jr. and if that's yeah. that's two my guess is there's still others untalked about yeah and then here's what Janine Becky had to say not too long ago it's pretty disgusting that we're having to to ask to be treated equally we won the damn Olympics and we're about to go to the World Cup with a team that could win so you got your women's team, like they're one of the best teams in in the freaking world, and they're being treated like dirt. Yeah, like how this is how not how you treat world class players. And there's this cartoon from the Halifax Chronicle Herald. I don't know if you saw this, but it shows a women's soccer player with a ball. She's pulling a wagon with a big guy in a suit and a whip riding the wagon with money in the back. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up because it's the treatment is very poor. And when Christine St. Clair is saying you don't she doesn't want to support the association, it's bad. Like when you got your greatest player ever yeah. saying that, it's bad. 
not greatest player, not greatest player ever for Canada, but we're also talking about on the on the global stage. Well, too, right? Yeah, that's what I meant too, as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm like, I think I've, my voice is almost <laughs> gone from ranting about. You know what? Let's see. Say, this is not going to get solved overnight. Oh, this, this is not going to get solved overnight. Yeah, it's going to take a, a while. More. I I hate to say it, but I don't know if we're going to even see a contract by the time the Women's World Cup starts. In no, Australia, I doubt we are. Zealand. I would love it. I'm not expecting it, but I want to see players feeling like something is actually moving in the right direction. And the only people that can tell us if that is happening are the players. Right. And again, like you said, it's not going to happen overnight, but we need to see some sort of progress, like just step by step. Like, oh, we're, this is happening. This is also going to happen. It'll take happen in another few months. Then we can get this, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, All right, let's take a breath. Let's take a breath. Let's take a breath because my voice is almost shot. All yeah. right, let's move over to Europe. And it. oh my god, like Chelsea still still can't win. Like it's like one win in their last eight games, and this is a one-one draw at the London Stadium, formerly the London Olympic Stadium. The one-one draw with West Ham, and the new signings made an impact early, like Enzo Fernandez. Made a great ball to Jao Felix, who did a really good job to stay on side. It looked like he was offside at first glance. They actually checked it. But, no, he was on side. He did a really good job of staying on side. And he, and he got the goal for Chelsea, like, 20 minutes in. So, Enzo Fernandez, I mean, that's what you brought him in for. It's why you spend the money. Those passes like that. And that vision. Very crisp. And that was a beautiful goal. But West Ham responded not too long after with they were building up play and then Chelsea's defenders looked to sleep. And guess who scored? The former Chelsea left back, Emerson Palmieri, beats Kepa Ariza Blaga and thankfully he did not celebrate. And then Chelsea could have gotten a penalty late in the game, but Thomas Suchet decided to take a nap on the ground and his hand hit the ball. And it was not called. They didn't even go to VAR. But the Premier League explained that the hand that ball struck was the hand that broke the fall. Which is a very weird explanation because the ball clearly hit his hand. Should have been a penalty. And I'm not saying that, oh, Chelsea were robbed in this game. We should have, if that was called a penalty, we would have won. Because Chelsea were, once again, not that great. Other than a few players. Like Enzo Fernandez and Joe Felix were really... Doing well. So were Reese James. But there was so much poor play happening. Like Mark Kukurea at left back, he should not be playing for a while because he was very bad. Like he couldn't defend. Like on that Emerson goal, he was just watching. I mean, so were the other Chelsea defenders. And then Kukurea, he was pulling a little Russell Tiber here instead of passing forwards. He decides to pass backwards and sideways. Like, you got Mikhailo Mudrik sprinting down the wing, but Kukurea decides to pass it sideways. That's always frustrating. That is very, very frustrating. And then, Graham Potter, like, with his poor substitutions, he doesn't give chances to David Dastro Fafana or Carney Shukameweka. You know who he decides to bring on? Connor Gallagher and Mason Mount. And they didn't, they made pretty much no impact off the bench. I don't know why these two still play, even though their form is very 
very bad. And sure, Chelsea were the better team in possession, but once again, it doesn't mean doesn't mean jack when you can't do anything with it. And then um, West Ham also thought they won it late, but Suchek, of all people, got in Declan Rice's rebound, but it was offside. And, uh, I mean, Graham Potter, I've talked about giving him the time he needs with these new signings, but he's showing no improvement. Sure, he's just changing the formation, but when you watch Chelsea play, you don't know what their system is. It's just passing, passing, move the ball around. No identity ball, as I like to call it. No, because I have no idea what kind of team they are supposed to be. And one win in their last eight games. Under Roman Abramovich, Potter would have gotten the boot. But Todd Bowling and the others are willing to give him time until possibly mid-next season. Are they willing to give him time because they signed him to such a stupid contract? That also, too. Yeah. But like like you've said in the past, there probably has to be some kind of buyout clause. There has to be. I'm sorry. But for that length of time, and you don't have a buyout clause, you're just shooting yourself in the foot. Hopefully there is, because but nothing has really been said about that, that yeah. I know of. And I'm, it's just, like, you spend £600 million, and the team isn't, is mid-table. Like, it's almost relegation form at this rate. But I, again, Graham Potter, I'm willing to give him time, but he's not earning my trust at this point, and I'm really, really tempted to just say hashtag Potter out, but it's it, I refrain myself from doing that because things could change with him, he could prove me wrong which I want him to be, to do but it's, it's, I can't blame any Chelsea fan for saying Potter out, even though he's been here just a few months, because there is no system, there is no, like signs of improvement, his substitutions are very poor, he keeps favoring players so, I don't know maybe maybe it is best that Chelsea sack Grant Potter, but they're not going to do it if if again, if Roman Abramovich were in charge still, he would have been gone like last month, or a mo- two months ago but yeah, he's pretty ruthless, or was pretty ruthless Yeah, and I'm pretty sure most Chelsea fans would take an interim manager over Grant Potter and I, I just like I want him to do well, but he's not doing himself any any favors. And and playing Mark, if he plays Mark Correa next game, I like I don't know what to tell you. And who's and the next game is against Dortmund today in the Champions League at the Signal Iduna Park, so the atmosphere is going to be pretty great. And Grand Potter said yesterday, in response to a question, saying that he never gets angry, if you think you can start a coaching career in the ninth tier of English football and get to the point now as a Chelsea and Champions League manager without getting angry, I suggest you don't know anything about anything. Well, I guess he's right. But he just needs to show more of that bite on the pitch because you don't really see a lot of it. He's not really animated on the touchline. He just makes these weird faces and just walks around. Like, even Thomas Tuchel, Frank Lampard, all all the Chelsea predecessors, former managers, 
they showed a lot of passion on the sideline. That's another thing that Earth Chelsea fans about him. That he just looks lifeless on the sidelines. But we'll see what he can do. Maybe he's just a guy who just likes to doesn't like to be seen in public showing emotion. So what about the rumors that are out there that apparently Jose Mourinho wants to come back to the Premier League and it's specifically Chelsea? I mean, I'm not really taking too much stock into it. Yeah. But I love it because, you know, he is Jose Mourinho, but not only that, he has um he's a proven manager, one of the best to ever do it. Plays boring he's football. With Chelsea before. Yeah, he's played boring football, but he can win. But the only problem with him is he's probably not going to give time to Dr. Fofana and Chuka Maweka and all no. the other youth players because we all know what he is like. Yeah, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. So, yeah, Dortmund in Champions League later today. And let's see what they can do because Grand Potter in the Champions League has done so far so good. Just a bit of news here. So it's been rumored reported by many outlets that Christian Pulisic is set to leave Chelsea as part of a massive squad clear-out this season, not surprising. And it's best we move on from from him. And there's been rumors that they could include Christian Pulisic as a part of a deal to sign Jao Felix on a permanent deal. So it's possible that Pulisic could go to Atletico Madrid, and I guess Chelsea's Pulisic, Chelsea's legacy, Pulisic's legacy at Chelsea is injuries and inconsistency, and because he has shown flashes like in the lockdown, he's shown he could dribble well, he can score goals, he can't, he can be a decent playmaker, but he get getting injured a lot, and there were times when he would just disappear. And, yeah, I guess it's best they move on from Pulisic. And I just not like the guy. But right now, he isn't the player that should be playing for Chelsea. Because he isn't really that good enough. I do wonder about someone like Pulisic moving to La Liga, where some of the rumors... Yeah, me too. You know what? I think it's a place where he could potentially excel. Yeah. Right? You know where I think he could excel? Syria. Yeah. Yeah, even more so. You're right. It's it, it, the, We're talking about very technical leagues. He's a technical player. I don't think the physicality really suits him. I mean, the guy's basically got, you know, a body of glass bones. So, you know, maybe it wouldn't be better for him. Yeah, and they have, child, they have also hired Gilbert Inoka, a former New Zealand rugby union mental skills coach, as a new mental skills coach for the club. And it's something that's been needed because every manager since Jose Mourinho has questioned the team's mentality. And with a team with a lot of young players, you're going to need a guy like this because Chelsea's mentality, like big game mentality, or like mentality in general, has been lacking. Like players in the past would give their all and would avoid all distractions on the pitch, even outside, like Drogba, Lampard, and Terry, Czech. Those guys had winning mentality. And to bring a guy this 
guy from the New Zealand All Blacks, Gilbert Inoka. This is what this team needs because there's been the mentality at this club has been fragile for years. And Anoka is known for his philosophy of not relying on anyone who puts their interests ahead of the team. Thinks that they deserve special treatment from people or makes fuss needlessly about what they've done when that work. So Anoka is all about team. And that's what we need in sports. Every team player needs to be understand that they can't do it alone, that they are part of a team. So he's Anoka has done wonders with New Zealand team because they won the World Cup in rugby in 2011 and 2015 and are one of the best rugby teams in the world. Yeah. So this is just what the doctor ordered. And hopefully Grant Potter figures things out soon. I mean, he was really good at Brighton. He brought Brighton wouldn't be where they are today without them. But I really do think that this club is too big for him. Chelsea is not the right place for him. But once again, he can prove me wrong. Whether That can't be today, maybe next season. So for Tottenham, what the hell happened against Leicester City? Yeah, don't really know. We had an absolutely phenomenal game against Manchester City where they knew exactly what they needed to do. It wasn't a game about possession. It was a game of counterattack and then sit back. And then they come into this game and it's like they were done. They were done. It was it was So they just they, rolled over and died. They just didn't show up. And it was frustrating to watch because the one guy who did show up, Bentencore, got the loan uh, goal for Tottenham in a 4-1 loss and then ends up coming off injured and he is done for the season. Ruptured anterior cruciate ligament in his left knee, six to eight months recovery. This is your workhorse in the midfield. We all remember what he was able to do in the midfield when it came to earlier games with Spurs, what he's done when he's with the Uruguayan national team. When he is there, he bosses that midfield. Now that he's not there, it leaves a gaping hole in the middle of uh, in the middle of the midfield for Tottenham. I think the other thing we need to talk about is Pedro Porro making his debut for uh, for Spurs, and it's a debut that man he is going to want to forget. Tim Sherwood, after the game, former uh, academy uh, coach with uh, with Spurs, former head coach for Spurs yep. uh, as well, Tim. Tim. Yeah, I mean, he came out and he basically said, like, this is a, a defender who does not know how to defend. You've got players like Barnes and Madison that were absolutely just going right by him on the left-hand side, right? Like, I get it. This is a brand-new player, a brand-new uh, a brand new team. But I don't know whether he was just thrust in too quick on uh, on the, the right-hand side playing uh, as a fullback. He needs to step up if he is going to go there because you have players like Emerson Royale who in the past month have stepped up in that position and you're going to end up being another one of these Tottenham buys of 40 plus million that sit on the bench or end up going out on, out on loan like Ndele. It was, I'm, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to give this, this, this game a wash when it comes to, to Poro because I'm hoping that he will find his form but oh man it was it was bad enough where there's already people calling for him to just sit on the bench that he he needs he needs a timeout that's how concerning it is 
And that's how bad it is when you've only played a single match, right? Right. So, so I mean, you should be willing to give the guy to get settled in, but that is cause for a major concern. Yeah, it's major concern, especially when you're playing uh, more as a fullback position. Yes, you need to get up there. You need early crosses. But if you're not being a defender, if you're not helping out, excuse me, if you're not helping out your back line, it's bad. Because, I mean, where Tottenham was beat, they were beat on that right-hand side for them by 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 Leicester. And, and Leicester, uh, you take a look at the team and how they are this year. This is not a team that should be beating them. That's all I'm going to say about that game. I'm hoping it's this weird aberration. Let's talk about Champions League yesterday. It was a one nothing loss to AC Milan at the San Siro, but it wasn't necessarily a bad game. Now, Tottenham is dealing with a number of losses, and we can even include those losses in terms of players against Leicester as well. Hugo Lloris, he's out for about six to eight weeks. He's injured. Uh, Yves Basuma just had... Uh, uh, surgery as well. Uh, he is going to be out for a number, uh, a number of games. Very not, not too sure if he's going to be back for the rest of the season either. We now have a loss of Benton in this AC Milan game. Uh, Hoiberg was also out because he had a, a red card accumulation or a red card suspension of due to yellow card accumulation. So we're looking at a Spurs lineup that's missing some very, very key players. So in comes Oliver Skip and Pape Sar. Oliver Skip's been with the club for a while. He's been talked about as probably a future captain of the team. Pape not Sar, long ago, they were talking but, about loaning him out, right? Yeah, it was, right? Not long ago, they were talking about that just to give him game time, right? Because he wasn't getting in front of players like Benton Core, like Hoiberg. So now that those two are gone, I mean, it does give him a bit of an opportunity to sneak his way into the lineup. Pape Sar was signed a couple of years ago, immediately went back on loan as a part of a loan back. He's been with the club this year. He's another guy that they were looking at possibly loaning out again because they were he wasn't in the mix. He had a pretty good World Cup with Senegal. He's done really well. He's played for, a, like, I think this was his sixth game, actually, with Spurs. And he's also a very, very young player. But when you put those two players on the pitch together, they actually worked really, really well. Pape Sar had more touches than any other player on the field. He had more passes than any other player on the field. And you put him in there where he is allowed to flourish in a more creative uh, position where you have someone like Oliver Skip who is you know, picking up and winning those balls in front of the back line and getting them up to either the wings or someone like Saar. It showed you the potential of what that future of the midfield of Tottenham could look like because those two players did very, very well together. Yes, they lost the game, but they lost the game because of Romero, Christian Romero kind of turning off his brain, missing a header and allowing AC Milan to score in the sixth minute of the game. Oh, dear. But they dominated the game in terms of the, the play, in terms of the attacking threat. The problem was they were not able to turn that attacking threat into opportunities. They only had three shots on net, and I think that's something that's a little bit disheartening. But I don't think we're out of the game yet. The next game, the second, uh, the second leg of this, is back at Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. They also have four Premier League games to go before that game happens. So they can find their form again. They can figure it out. And they are still considered, by you know all intents, as the favorite to qualify. 
I think it'll happen, but they need some work to go there. There were positives in this game that I saw, and I think a lot of it is because they were forced to play these younger players, and they proved themselves. I hope that in doing so, players like Oliver Skip, players like Pape Sar aren't going to get shuffled back when you get players like uh, Hjoiberg coming back into the lineup. I want to see these other these young kids get more time because when that happens, you're going to see their improvement. It's happened when with players like Ryan Sessegnon. When he gets consistent game time, he does better. As soon as you start sitting him on the bench and then all of a sudden that fluidity, that improvement gets lost. So, no, you know what? It wasn't It wasn't as disheartening as the scoreline suggests. I do have cautious optimism when it comes to the Champions League and qualifying for the next knockout round. But when it comes to the injuries to top, top players, yeah, there is injuries. And I think one of those big ones is, again, I know I've talked about it before. I'm a broken record. We need a new goalkeeper. Yeah, We need a new goalkeeper. Hugo Lloris has been an absolute legend for the club. I mean, he has been with the club for over 10 years since his move from Marseille. But he is at the, t- the tail end of his career. He is now at the point of his career where he is an elder statesman. And that he needs to be a part. He needs to have a first hand in helping mentor a new generation of goalkeepers to come up in Tottenham. And part of that mentorship is to allow them to actually have games. We need a goalkeeper that is able to do that. We have talked about Rhea with Brentford. That's going to be a very, very tough get for, for Spurs. There are a number of other teams that are interested. Your uh, Chelsea is one of them. Yep. But I think they need to start looking now. They need to start having conversations now and not just in the summer. I'm, I want there to be public acknowledgement that this is what they're looking for. We know that they're looking for another center back. That's already been talked about. We know that that they're that they're looking at opening up negotiations again with someone like uh, oh the the guy that I was loving forever from Italy, and all of a sudden the name's escaping me. Uh, Bastoni. Bastoni. Uh, and Bastoni has said that he is holding off on renewing a contract right now where he is. So uh, with uh, Inter, I believe. So you know what? There is hope there somewhere. But I want them to make that same sort of commitment, that public commitment to a center back, that public commitment they've made to another striker. I want them to make it for a goalkeeper as well. That is where that that is what I'm looking at right now because Hugo Lloris, for as good as he has done with Spurs, for the loyalty he has shown, it's time to start looking at that next generation. The yep. other thing going on with Spurs right now, and this kind of came out of left, well, not really out of left field. I mean, there has been talk, especially with uh, the QSI, the, the Qatari uh, Sports Investment Fund, that was looking at a partial stake in Tottenham. There is reports of a full-on takeover bid from, and I am uh, apologize if I butcher this name, from Yam Najafi. Uh, Yam Najafi is uh, an Iranian-American businessman uh, out of uh, Phoenix. He is a partial owner and he is the vice chairman of the Phoenix Suns in the NBA right now. And he is a founding partner of what's known as Social Venture Partners. It's a, a venture capital fund uh, that deals more in uh, philanthropic uh, initiatives. 
they they actually invest more in emerging nonprofit organizations, which to me is actually kind of cool. You don't see a lot of venture capitalists looking at nonprofits, right? But he is a, reportedly getting ready in the next number of weeks to make a bid that will be around 3.1 billion pounds. Now, I think it's a good opening salvo. I think someone like Joe Lewis and Danny Levy are going to hold out for around the 5 billion mark, uh, especially when they factor in uh, the brand new stadium, the brand new training centers that they have, and kind of what they have, uh, have in terms of infrastructure assets. But the thing is, is Joe Lewis has come out and says that he has absolutely no intention of selling the club outright. That seems a little bit contradictory for me because there has been rumblings over this past year, year and a half that it, that that's exactly what he's looking for. He is looking for an out because I mean, he's been owner of Spurs now for, I mean, we're talking over 25 years. I think the one stickler is going to be Danny Levy. There is no chairman in the Premier League who has been around for as long as he has. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens with that. Again, I don't think we're going to see a lot of news about this over the next little bit, but you go a month into the future when a bid might potentially happen. Yeah, I'm going to take a little bit more interested, uh, more interested right now, or uh, more interest then than I am right now. The one thing I am interested in is that the there's actually a name being attached to the bid, which hasn't happened in the past. So we'll see where this goes then. Pretty much. So I it could I feel like this could be something, but it's gonna take some time for it to, you know, really take. It's off. gonna take a lot of time. I don't see this happening anytime soon. But the fact that there is a name attached to it. And it is a guy that does have interest in the sport world. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Yep, and so am I. So other Champions League action: Bayern Munich faced PSG at the Parc des Princes in pa- in Saint De- Paris, actually. And this was a Bayern Munich. Um, they were in control for yep. like the first minute, but that was until Kylian Mbappe came off the bench at halftime, and he wasn't 100, percent but he gave PSG hope. Clearly seemed to score a goal, but uh, Nuno Mendes, who was PSG's best player on the pitch, I think, was offside by half a foot, which I think should be changed because I think it should be the entire foot or leg or arm or whatever to be considered offside and not half of it. That's a, <laughs> I think that should be changed. You got to play within the rules that you got. Yep. But, like, Bayern were really controlling like possession they were look more threatening especially in the her like Marquinhos and was getting shredded and so was Hakimi Hakimi had to be subbed off at half time and Alfonso Davies did not play the first half but he did play the second half and he made an impact pretty much right away because his cross is found Kingsley Coleman the Paris native and former PSG Academy product. And Donnarumma should have had that one because that felt like it went through his gloves. But Davies got the assist on Coleman's goal. Yeah, you know what? Those are two players that are going to be uh, uh, leading Bayern Munich for a long time to come. And they're showing why. Yep. And... 
It's I, funny because you look at Kingsley Coleman, and this is a guy that only a few years ago was talked about as being on the back end of uh, the death chart when it comes to Bayern Munich, and he was going to be on his way out. I don't see that. Uh, he's nope, one of that's the not happening. Essential pieces, right? Right. And it goes to it, show that if you have that patience in developing your youth players, this is what can happen. Right. David and you know who is a, a part of that as well, right? I mean, in terms of finding him a position where he fits, allowing him to, to excel and eventually become the player that he is today. Man, Bayern Munich is just so good at that. And speaking of young players, you know who else look good for PSG? Warren Zaire Emery. Yeah. 16 years old, was pretty good at passing the ball, made some good runs, and that was his Champions League debut, I believe. And when Lionel Messi made his Champions League debut all those years ago, Zaire Emery wasn't even born. <laughs> That's amazing. And he was... And he was playing up with Lionel Messi. So, yeah, that is amazing. And Messi and Neymar you're look... Old, you're going to feel like you can retire already. Yeah, Messi and Neymar look isolated. didn't really make too much of an impact because... The, like, Dayat Upamecano, Benjamin Pavard, and the rest of the Bayern midfield and defense really found a way to close down on them. And speaking of Davies, he finally got to swap shirts with Lionel Messi. After yeah, wanting to do that, that for last, <laughs> after wanting to do that after the eight two win three years ago, but yeah. he finally got to do it. Uh, some quick stuff here. Final report on last year's Champions League final: saving failings in Paris. More accurately, say Dennis. The the report absolved Liverpool fans, but placed blame solely on UEFA, the French police, and other French bodies for all that havoc that happened prior to last year's Champions League final. Yeah, so this report has basically said that uh, UEFA, as being the, the governing body that was in control of this match, failed to uh, ensure that uh, failed to ensure fan safety, and that uh, by throwing blame uh, as early as they did on Liverpool fans, not only was you know incorrect, but it brought back a, lo- a lot of what happened to Liverpool uh, with the Hillsborough disaster as well. So you're you're also you know, increasing the level of trauma uh, of a lot of these guys uh, or that uh, people that would have traveled just to, just to watch their team. That's it. Just to watch their right. team. They said it was actually a miracle that nobody died as a result of this. Yeah, it was a miracle. Yeah. Now, France uh, and a lot of the French governing bodies, like the French police service, their, their MPs and whatnot, have said, well, we only had two months to plan this because the final that was supposed to be in uh, in Russia got moved because Russia was banned from uh, any sort of UEFA events. So we did as best we could with what we had. There is at least one MP from England who has officially written a letter to the French uh, president, prime minister in France, uh, uh, Macron. Uh, anyway, I can't president, remember. Yeah. He's the president, right? Uh, right. Asking for a, a full a public and official apology. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, this report, uh, it was one that was commissioned by UEFA through an independent, uh, uh, I guess, tribunal only days after, uh, the, the final happened with the Champions League last year. So for them to come out so scathing against the people that hired them, I mean, that tells you something. This, this was mismanagement from top to bottom. Yeah, it was, the whole thing was just handled so poorly. And I don't understand how Liverpool fans managed to get in, even though they didn't have tickets, like the security was bad like the french police couldn't get the situation under control like you i mean there's some to blame on liverpool fans but 
not a lot, but it's mostly on the police and the security for it's, handling it's the police things. and the security. If there's anything, I mean, I, for me, I don't think you can blame Liverpool fans. Because yeah, I don't think you can blame them that much. People that are that are supposed to be guiding them wherever to yeah, go. Yeah, scratch that. You can't really blame them too much, though. Yeah, because though you can blame you, them. If you're not being told where to go, I mean, yeah, you're. It's going to create problems on the fan side, but it, it's because they simply just don't know, right? I mean, they're they're in a place where they they don't know where they're supposed to be, right? Anyway, um, some other news here. The Club World Cup, uh, next, 2023, next year actually, to be, will be held in Saudi Arabia. This year's World Club World Cup, which is the 2022 edition, which, I don't know, that just, that just makes things confusing, you know? Yeah. It's, um, was held. The previous year, yeah. Yeah, it was held, I believe, in, uh, in Morocco, yeah, it was in Morocco, and Real Madrid are champions of the world after beating Al Hilal of Saudi Arabia. And Saudi yeah. Arabia is where next year's tournament will be. And this looks like another episode of sports washing. Yeah, you take a look at, especially with the amount of clubs that are being bought out by different investment funds that are coming out there. Yeah, I mean, you've got literally the guy who is uh, the head of the sports investment fund that bought out. Uh, uh, Newcastle is basically been accused of murder. So <laughs> yep. I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, again, you've got a, a, bo- a governing body like FIFA who says that they have pillars that they pillars of values that they build themselves on. But you know, you can throw this to having a World Cup in Qatar. You can have this to having a World Cup in Russia. This is just more of the same. Yeah, more propaganda, more propaganda see how great a country saudi arabia is and the club world cup is a big event yeah so right i mean you're, right. you're you've got the biggest of the best i mean you no know, we we had a uh, seattle got to be a part of this year's world cup obviously didn't get too far they were out in the first match but it's a, it's arguably supposed to be the best teams of your uh, confederation worldwide going up worldwide yep it's huge it's huge and yeah it's more propaganda, more sports washing for the club World Cup and for soccer. And back to the Premier League for a bit. Mikel Arteta comes hard against VAR over a blunder, which cost Arsenal a win against Brentford over the weekend. And who, by the way, will be playing Man City in just a few minutes. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? He's not wrong. It was I a didn't horrible see it, so. call. The fact that the v, the VIR referee did not draw the lines to look at the offside, and when you do draw the lines, you see that it was it was yeah uh, the the fact that it, it it was. So he's I mean the referee association has come out and apologized. They've done it, but yeah I mean Arteta has basically just said we accept no apology. You want to apologize to us? Give us two points. Yeah, you were. Or wrong, didn't really get to see the call, but I mean, football in both footballs worth refereeing. Like not only the Super Bowl, but you got some in the Premier League that had some terrible refereeing. Just this poor refereeing in both footballs. Yeah, this is the one thing that it still boggles my mind, in that you take a look at all the sports around the world that have brought in some form of video review. Uh, tennis, when whether the ball has crossed over a line and is out of bounds. Hockey, over uh, whether something is... Uh, goalie interference. You know, goalie interference. Or whether Which is very confusing. Line. The thing is, is, yes, there 
and the thing is, is all of this boils down to human error. The technology is there, but people need to figure out how to use it. And by and large, yes, with, you know, a few erroneous occasions, other sports seem to have figured it out. I don't get what is going on with football in that time and time again, they can't seem to figure out how to use the technology that is available for them. I mean, we're talking the better part of a decade now that this has been available. Figure it out. Yeah, figure it out. Change the rules in order to use the technology. Decide if you want to do that and then commit to it. But I mean, it's just, it boggles my mind. One of the things that soccer needs to do, in my mind, they they got to get a stop clock. This, the, yes, the that they're using running time. I mean, it was actually tracked. There was a game last year that, because of running time, more time was spent not playing the sport, like in terms of like setting up for a set piece or arguing with the referee and all this other stuff. More time was spent doing that than actually the the the, the time that was spent playing the game, right? Like right. if we're at that point, you have a problem. Get rid of the stop clock. Allow, if you have these decisions that need to be made, allow them to be made without the pressure of a running time uh, happening, right? Get it right and then move on. Right. And learn how to use the technology and yeah, for VAR. So figure it out. Like it's been years since this was introduced and there's still so many problems. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it it's surprising to me that it's taken so long to figure this out. Get it, get it done. You have, you literally have a governing body that does rules for the game. If you allow this technology to be used, which they do, it's part of the rules of the game. Now put in rules on how it should be used uniformly across all sport or across all leagues. Right. I don't know. I, I, to me, it just seems like a no brainer, but you know, what do Man, I know? That's one. That's one thing that unites fans from all over the world. How bad VAR is, and it's not VAR that's bad. It's it's the individuals that are using it, right? Right. Uh, we'll end it here on some uh, tragic news. Uh, Arn Espel of Winkle Sports B, the second division of Belgium, uh, and he is a goalkeeper that apparently died during a match, saving a penalty, cheered, and then collapsed. Sadly, he they tried to rescue him with a defibrillator, but he sadly passed away. Yeah, uh, it was uh, again very strange. I got to admit, like we we have seen this happen in in football, awesome. but I have never yep. seen this happen with a goalkeeper. Right? I mean, this is this is not something that I was expecting. And right now, they're not even giving a reason for what what happened with the death. Uh, an autopsy has been scheduled for Monday to determine cause of death. Uh, or sorry, it was uh, for last Monday evening. So it's already been done. Results just have not been released. Uh, my guess is that they're wanting to deal with uh, the family and make sure that, you know, everything happens there. The other thing that's really, really disheartening is the younger brother of Arne, who did pass away, his younger brother, Aaron, was on the bench for the same team. So he oh, was there, right? Uh, yeah. I, again, I mean, you know, this, this, it's not just uh, in soccer that this happened. We, we know it just happened uh, where a, a player collapsed in, in uh, yeah, America. DeMar Hamlin? Yeah. yeah with the well, NFL? Thankfully, he, he is fine. He is recovered. And he was actually in the stands for the Super Bowl that just happened. But yeah, I, I just, 
uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you can do with this to make the sport safer. Yeah, and he was only 25 years old. 25 years old. Gold Could happen to anyone. You know, he makes a yeah. save, he cheers, and that's it. And, and that's the last thing he sees. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's somber to end the note, but I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Uh, Whitecast season is next week, and we'll do a bigger preview, I guess, next week. Tell us what we're doing right. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Follow me on Twitter at JoshRay91. Nathan is at Enderic. Podcast is at Terminal City FC. Check out the Facebook and Instagram pages. So, yeah, that concludes this week's episode. Sucks to end it on that note, but we'll end it here. Hope you enjoyed the episode. And peace out. Take care.